As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yo, technology, what is it all about? One in two adults, at least one in two has their face in a face recognition network that can be searched unwarranted using algorithms that haven't been audited for accuracy. That was 2016, right? So more than 117 uh, million adults in that context. And it comes back to this question of how pervasive is it? We don't know. And we should. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I'm your host, Danny Fortson. I am also the West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times, writing week in and week out about all the wild things happening out here in tech land. And this week, we've got a good one for you. Now, you may recall a few weeks back, we had on the program Rashida Richardson of AI Now. She came on to talk about the many, many issues with facial recognition technology. And that, of course, was really spurred by the protests over George Floyd's murder. And you had several big companies come out, IBM, Amazon, Microsoft, saying either we're pulling out entirely or we're pausing. We're not going to sell this anymore until there are regulations, which is great. But in that discussion... Richardson mentioned the groundbreaking research of one person in particular who really was the first to kind of make clear just how problematic facial recognition technology can be, especially when it comes to racial bias, and more broadly how these same dynamics can percolate through the AI that is, you know, kind of seeping into all these different corners of our life. And I thought, well, that sounds interesting. We should have that person on. So... On the program this week, we have Joy Bulamwini. She is the founder of the Algorithmic Justice League, which is just a fabulous name, of course. And what they do is they use research, art, policy to really try to hold up a mirror to what is happening with these algorithms that are already out in the wild, that are leading to false arrests, unfair prison sentences, people getting hired and fired, and just kind of laying bare this idea that, you know, we think about AI as this kind of magic, this kind of black box. And she's really kind of pulling back that curtain and showing that all the issues, all the warts, all what's really happening behind the scenes here that are leading to some pretty problematic results and the need to really think hard as we push this stuff further out there into the world or pull some of it back in. So anyhow, I think you guys will really enjoy the discussion. Joy's doing some really interesting work. She's got a really fascinating life story. 
and I think it'll, you'll come away with it with uh, a few factoids or things you can talk to other people about who, you know, kind of impress them with, did you know X? Uh, because it is quite extraordinary, especially, as I said, machine learning, AI, etc. It is seeping more and more into all these different corners of our lives, and it's making decisions and taking the controls in ways that we don't even think about, and it's important that we do think about it. So, anyhow... I think you're going to like this one, so I will stop talking and I give you Joy Bulamwini, founder of the Algorithmic Justice League. Enjoy! Before we get into all the heady stuff, I was on your Wikipedia page. You're the first person on this podcast who was a pole vaulter. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Can you tell me just a, a brief history of your pole vaulting career? Well, it was, I think brief is probably the operative <laughs> word there. So I started in high school. I really fell in love with it, just the challenge of trying to go higher. And then when I did undergrad, I thankfully got an academic scholarship. But when I got my Rhodes Scholarship to attend Oxford University, I went to a freshers' fair, and they happened to be looking for a woman pole vaulter. I was like, well, I do fit the description. Is this competitive? <laughs> no, we just have to beat Cambridge. Wonderful. So that's that's how I continued it a little bit later. And so not much of a pole vaulting career, but something I truly enjoyed doing. So I was on the Blues team for Oxford after having done it um, in high school. Just uh, following on from that, I think it would be you have a really interesting background. You've jumped all over the world, and I think it would be it would be helpful to kind of center the conversation because you obviously have a unique background, and I imagine that has informed kind of the work you're doing now. So if you could give a brief kind of potted history of you up to this point, and then we can talk about wh- what you're doing. Sure. So I call myself Canadian-American. I was born in Canada, then moved to Ghana when I was around two and then made it to my first Oxford, Oxford, Mississippi, when I was around four (laughs) years old. So I'm a first generation immigrant and my early experiences of the United States are in the American South. I'm also the daughter of an artist and a scientist. And I do think that comes through my work in so much as I am Mm. a poet of code. After being in uh, Oxford, Mississippi for some time, I stayed in the South, did my middle school and high school years in Tennessee before doing undergraduate at the Georgia Institute of Technology, where I studied computer Mm. science. I was very fortunate to be awarded a Fulbright Fellowship and then subsequently a Rhodes Scholarship. So I spent some time in Zambia doing the Fulbright Fellowship and then moved to the UK and studied at Oxford for a few years. I come from a academic family. My grandfather was actually also a professor, as is my dad. Even though I graduated with, you know, degrees from a few universities, I got the call, what about that PhD? You know, you've probably heard of tiger parents. I had the lion parents, the African version. Is this not enough, all these scholarships? So I said, all right, I'll apply to one place. I applied to MIT. Thankfully, the one shot worked out. I was accepted. And then I started my journey at MIT, which led me into the research around bias in 
facial recognition technologies, first looking at gender classification, looking at face detection, and then looking at the social implications of facial recognition technology as well. So that's how I got to here. The jumping around from Canada to Ghana to Mississippi, is that due to your father's work as a, as a professor? Yes, so you could tell we were foreigners because he was saying he was a professor at Ole Miss, which you might also know as Ole Miss. <laughs> so this was a part of it. And yeah, so going um, to uh, different professorships was part of the jumping around. Got you. So the work you're doing now with the Algorithmic Justice League, which we'll get to in a second, I'm just interested, especially growing up in the South, in Mississippi in particular, was growing up there formative in your desire to look at these issues around bias in particular? I mean, what I really appreciate is that growing up, everything felt possible. And so I remember Mm -hmm. being in Oxford, Mississippi and feeding cancer cells at my dad's lab. And he had these huge silicon graphics machines that had 3D models of protein structures. And so I think sometimes when people hear I grew up in Oxford, Mississippi, I'm not sure what mental image is created, but I do think one thing that the reaction to growing up in Oxford, Mississippi, then studying Oxford, UK, is just perception based on which part of the story you tell. And I look at that in the work that I do now around AI and bias, and it is, which narrative are we hearing? What assumptions do we make? If we're assuming technologies are neutral or somehow impartial, is there another view to that story or alternative experiences that might shake up the initial assumptions. And so one thing in having grown up in Oxford, Mississippi, is understanding people's narratives or preconceptions based on just a small amount of information. And so always wanting to dig deeper, I think perhaps it's formed me in that manner. So what is the Algorithmic Justice League? When did you start it? What is the goal? Sure. So the Algorithmic Justice League is a hybrid research, advocacy, and art organization. And our mission really is to create a world with more equitable and accountable AI so that technology serves all of us, not just the privileged few. So how we go about doing that is through highlighting issues of AI bias and harm so people are even aware of what's going on. We also do academic research, some of which I hope to talk about here, and we do quite a bit of advocacy work as well. So it is looking at this ecosystem and saying to make change, we have to interact and intersect with many different kinds of stakeholders. It got started while I was a grad student at MIT, and I had this experience of working on a class project that used some face tracking software, and the software not really working well on my face until I literally put a white mask on my dark skin. And that definitely Mm -hmm. gave me a pause. And so I started exploring computer vision and machine vision a bit more. 
and also started digging into this question of how do we train machines to see humans? And are those perceptions different based on what kind of human you are? So this is what led me into the exploration. And then it's this major rabbit hole because it's not just data-driven AI systems being used for facial recognition technologies. No, you have AIs deciding if you get hired or fired, uh, what kind of medical treatment somebody might receive, how much you're paying for services and goods if you are approached by the police. And so what started as exploration because of my own experience of coding in a white mask has evolved into something much more, particularly once I started doing research that was showing major racial and uh, gender bias in AI systems from some of the top tech companies in the world. And so there's a couple of things I want to draw out there. One is just, I think, and on this podcast, we talk a lot about AI. Um, and there is a bit of branding going on because AI kind of encompasses a whole bunch of stuff. But just trying to unpick a little bit of how pervasive it is now, because I think it's one of the these things that is perhaps more far-reaching than people realize. So I don't know if there's any kind of context or numbers you can give around just how deeply ingrained some of the, these algorithms already are and what they are doing, and then we can get into why that is potentially a problem. Well, I think the major lesson for me in exploring this space is the lack of transparency. So Mm -hmm. oftentimes we don't know how these systems are being deployed until there's an investigation or a leak. Clearview AI scraping over 3 billion images and then selling what they've developed to law enforcement and other kinds of entities around the world. That's happening. That's huge. And we don't know about it. So when I think about AI, and I and I, sometimes I use this term, the coded gaze. So there's the male gaze, there's the white gaze, post-colonial gaze, the coded gaze is very much a reflection of who has the power to shape technology with their prejudices, with their priorities, with their preferences. And this coded gaze isn't always visible. And to me, that's actually one of the most uh, pernicious things when we're thinking about potential harmful uses of AI, because there are not requirements to necessarily disclose how and where and when this technology is being used. I was watching one of your talks before we got on. But one of the things there, and there's probably more research since then, if it's 2016, was this, I think you referenced a Georgetown study that said something like in America, effectively half of the U.S. population their face is already in some kind of facial recognition database. Oh, yes. So I mentioned earlier that how I got into this work was I was experimenting around with some face tracking uh, software for a student class project. And I had this experience of uh, coding in a white mask. And I mean, that was annoying, right? I don't get my project to work. But it wasn't life uh, altering. What made it more urgent for me is when I read the perpetual lineup report from Georgetown Law, because what it shared was one in two adults, at least one in two, has their face in a face recognition network that can be searched unwarranted using algorithms that haven't been audited for accuracy. That was 2016, right? So more than 117 
uh, million adults in that context. And it comes back to this question of how pervasive is it? We don't know. And we should. Yeah, because presumably it's dramatically more, I would guess, since then, if you, especially if you're talking about what Clearview AI, which is just one little company, what they were doing with scraping 3 billion public images from the internet. So how are you attacking this? Sure. So the first step for the research was this curiosity I had about why am I reading about all of these breakthroughs, not just in AI, but facial recognition technologies? Because when I look at the academic literature, the way it's presented, it sounds like we've arrived, right? We mm. have 97% or higher accuracy on the gold standard benchmarks. It sounds good. But I'm having a very different experience of this. So my first interrogation was really how do we measure success in AI? And oftentimes the way we're measuring success is based on data sets we've collected um, that serve as benchmarks, right? See how well you perform on the benchmark? If you're doing well on the benchmark, we're saying we're doing well in the field. So I started interrogating those benchmarks and I started to understand how we got to a place where the narrative is advancement and my experience is showing me something else. And so when I looked at some of these data sets that had become important within uh, facial recognition research, I found what I call pale male data sets. So you might have a data set that is over 75% male, um, 80% or more lighter skinned individuals, and that's being used as a gold standard. So the problem with mm -hmm. that is if your measures for success look like an all white jury, you might miss <laughs> a few other factors. So what I did with my research was say, okay, what happens if we collect a data set that is not quite so skewed? People are like, oh, it's hard to get the first data set, et cetera. So, so I went to the UN Women's website and I got a list of the top 10 nations in the world by their representation of women in parliament. Guess which one was number one? It's not the U.S. I can let you know that. No, I can't. I know it's not the U.S. Um, Canada? Rwanda. <laughs> Rwanda leading Ooh. the world. And in fact, you had three other African nations in the top 10. So I chose those three um, nations. So it also included uh, Senegal and South Africa. And then because I saw all the paleness in these uh, data sets, right, I did the African parliamentarians, but I wanted to get the other side. So I looked at Nordic countries, right? So maybe not too surprising. They try to be egalitarian when it comes to the representation. So we have Finland, we have Iceland, we have Sweden. So I collected uh, parliamentarian images there in order to have a data set that would be a bit more balanced than what you typically see. And so this was extremely important because again, if our measures for success, if our gold standards are pyrite, don't actually represent the rest of the world, we have a false sense of progress. So this was the major thing I was looking into. What happens when we change the all-white jury? Turns out when you change the all-white jury, you get a little different result. So we ran the <laughs> test. And the other thing we did that was really important was, yes, there are systems that are being developed in research labs, universities across the world, but we want to test systems that are now available in commercial products. 
because you can always make the argument, oh, it's research development, fine tune it, et cetera, and so forth. So I was like, okay, let's take a look at IBM. Let's take a look at Microsoft. Let's take a look at Face++, billion dollar tech company in China. Let's see how they do. And so another part of our approach, right, is testing commercially available systems. This way we have a sense of what's being deployed in the world. And when we did this, I I had to run this test many, many times just to make sure, right? Because you don't say large tech company has racial bias or gender bias, or we did an even deeper dive intersectional analysis, which is also another important point, without making sure you have double checked and verified. And so part of what we do is naming and changing, not naming and shaming. So we wanted to name the companies show the results to demonstrate even at some of the largest tech companies where you have the assumption you have the best and the brightest working on these systems, there can be major gaps. And so as a graduate student with a data set of 1,270 images, I'm showing these skews that have been missed and also these disparities that seem quite egregious. So for example... If all the systems we tested for our first study, error rates on guessing the gender for lighter skin men, no mm-hmm. more than 1%. When you did darker skinned women, they soared up to over 30%. And these were commercially available. Out, out in the wild being used for important stuff. Out in the wild, yes, right? And so you can you can imagine then when we tested Amazon, to our surprise, when they had similar numbers, because we did this test a year later. So mm. imagine the test has happened. The New York Times has covered it. You know, TED Talk is out there. It's It wasn't a secret. So we were yeah. quite surprised, especially uh. given that you had civil liberties and rights organizations reaching out to Amazon. You had shareholders, you had employees telling Amazon stop selling recognition, not just because of the accuracy disparities, but because of the harms and abuses that can happen when facial recognition technology is in the hands of law enforcement. So I was actually quite surprised that even after all of that, and we sent preliminary results too, before we even published the paper, right? Oh, really? We weren't trying to be like, oh, let's get another paper. I know this is dangerous. If you're selling the police, here's yet another reason to not do that. And so we published that study as well. So again, it was quite welcomed in the last few weeks to have IBM, Microsoft, and Amazon, all companies we've audited, step away in different degrees and different ways from facial recognition technologies. It's unfortunate it took the cold-blooded murder of George Floyd to tip this over, but it's been years of work raising public awareness about the harms and flaws of these systems. What was the big reveal on Amazon? How bad was it? (laughs) So Amazon was actually Amazon did have a a pretty perfect result for white males. It was very impressive for white males. What was surprising was even after a year, right, their numbers um, for darker skinned women were closer to the 30 percent. And I'm saying this was surprising that you would have such a wide gap after we'd already tested your peers. 
And another thing that I found surprising with Amazon is I mentioned my test, right? Gender classification. That's only one type of facial analysis task. You have facial recognition as well, which is identification, the surveillance state, or verification, open your iPhone. So the National Institute for Standards and Technology tested over 180 algorithms. I think it was 189 algorithms in total, and they're doing more tests, so growing for demographic effects, right? So they found that, oh, there are some differences based on your age, based on your race, based on your gender, basically what we showed. But now not in just the context of gender classification, but facial recognition, right? Where you're concerned with the individual identity of a person. Why I bring this up is in this test, right? Here, we're now moving from 1,270 images, which is what our test did, to millions of photos. They found that in some cases, right, algorithms would perform 10 to 100 times worse when you looked at Asian and African American faces compared to Caucasian faces. When it came to certain tasks, the worst performance was actually on African American women. And on other tasks, the worst performance was on Native Americans. And so I share these numbers to say these systems can fail in different ways for different kinds of people. It's not just a black, white kind of scenario. But guess who was absent from that test? Who? Amazon. Yet Microsoft submitted. They absented themselves? They did not submit to the National Institute for Standards and Technology. So if you say, okay, the test we've done, you don't agree with it, etc., submit to the National Institute for Standards and Technology. Microsoft did. Right. Yeah. You know, so I, I found their actions to be questionable on many fronts, to say the least. Uh, but I was heartened to see, again, IBM, Microsoft and Amazon step back from facial recognition technology, if only momentarily, because it signals that there are harms. But it also is an opportunity to make sure we're not relying on corporate self-regulation, but making sure we put pressure on our lawmakers, our policymakers. I wouldn't expect Amazon to have the public interest as their priority. This is not by construction what they're set up to do. But what I don't understand, and maybe I don't know if you have an insight onto this, but if I'm Amazon or IBM or Microsoft, and I am a business and I want to sell the best product, why am I using data sets that are mostly white and male when that is not what the world looks like? And if I'm trying to sell this to, whether it's a company, you know, like, you know, their security in their lobby or a police force or a government or anybody, why am I going to sell something that just on its very basis is going to be faulty because it does not reflect the world? I don't understand that. If you don't share those issues and people believe the marketing and you can still get money for it. It's not in your interest to reveal the flaws. What I found interesting when I started doing this work, amplifying these issues around bias in facial recognition technologies, broadly speaking, is how many people from the biometrics world reached out saying, we have a 
algorithmic confessions. I used to work in QA. I just didn't include darker skinned people because it would have made my job harder. It was kind of this open secret. And Mm. also what we did is we put the numbers behind it, right? But if you... If you've tried, you might have even seen uh, the HP camera fail, where two people are looking at an HP camera for some video conferencing app, and you see that it tracks the face of the white woman, and then the black man comes up, and it doesn't work, right? So it's not as if people weren't aware, oh, these systems don't work as well on darker skinned people, Right. So my question was, with everybody coming to me afterwards, now that we're making it hard to refute, here are the numbers, here are examples, here are screenshots, here's Amazon labeling Oprah male with some confidence, right? Where this is not speculation, we're documenting it. Oh, yeah, we've known this is an issue. And so my question is, why hasn't it been addressed? Well, especially as it's still being aggressively sold and marketed as a product that is reliable. Again, I think there are some deceptive practices that can come, but I also do believe a major issue is the misleading benchmarks. Because if you, this new study that came out was uh, much more comprehensive than other studies that have happened. So if you're saying, oh, we tested it on the gold standards, we seem to be doing fine, or you make this easy assumption that, one face is like every other face. This small sample of humanity is somehow universal and can represent everybody, right? Then you can fall into that slope. But why they continue to sell technology if it's knowingly flawed is a question I would have to pose to companies themselves. Well, indeed. And also because this isn't like you're selling Microsoft Word and it's buggy and it means like, you know, you're pressing a comma and it's putting a period like this is stuff that is quite, in some cases, you know, not to be too dramatic about it, but like kind of life and death. Yes, absolutely. Um, Even let's just look at Robert Williams, right, who was misidentified by false face recognition match. He was arrested in front of his family. He was detained for nearly 30 hours before he was finally released. And we know the context of policing in the US. This is a big black man. It could have yeah. ended in a very different kind of situation. And still, the consequences of misidentification are irreversible and indelible. You have a Brown University senior um, in April 2019 who was falsely identified as a terrorist. In the Sri Lanka Easter bombings, she wasn't in Sri Lanka. It's not this, oh, hypothetical, might there be issues. I'm part of the film Coded Bias. The film crew was in the UK where a 14-year-old black boy was misidentified by the police, right? They caught it on, it's happening. So it's, this is not some hypothetical, oh, it could go wrong. We already have, it's going wrong. Yeah, we already have documented cases. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plushcare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm John Pina, and you can hear my afternoon programme on Times Radio. Wherever you are in the world, do join me as I talk about the big issues of the day to experts, journalists and guests. Listen to my afternoon show for free on DAB Radio, your smart speaker, online at times.radio and via our free Times Radio app. Every Monday to Thursday, 4pm till 7 on Times Radio. Know your times. Going back to the events of a few weeks ago when, you know, the big the big guys said, OK, we're going to stop doing this until... You know, as you say, they all have a bit of a different take on it. We're going to wait till some new laws are put in place or we're just going to stop it entirely, whatever it may be. How do you see this playing out? And are you kind of how involved in that are you? Are you kind of inside the tent? Or are you still just kind of putting this research out there just to kind of hold up the mirror to what is actually happening? So when you say the big guys, these are the big household names, but the big yeah. players are NEC, our Rank One, our Vigilant Solutions, our Cognitech. So you also have to say who's actually selling this technology and which names are known. But what is important about big players in the tech world that are household names is we're having this conversation, right? It gives a platform for these kinds of conversations and explorations to happen. And we should also keep in mind that when IBM made their announcement, it was with a letter to Congress. So what are we seeing now? We are seeing political will. We are seeing the mobilization of people resisting against systemic racism and also systematic racism that can be embedded in technologies. So facial recognition is on the line. If you want to be part of that conversation for what the future of regulation of these technologies look like, it is helpful to signal yourself as a either responsible or reasonable company in some capacity to be at the seat for when the federal laws, which many are mobilizing for, we have pushed for, continue to push for, to put red lines and guidelines around facial recognition technologies. So there is a strategic imperative. You already see Microsoft championing certain kinds of legislation in this space, which is not the legislation that, again, foremost puts above the business interest, the public interest. You wouldn't expect it to be. 
also in uh, working and uh, connecting with employees at all of these companies, there are employees internally who are very concerned about what's going on. And this is where you see the petitions and the mobilization, a lot of employee activism. So I wouldn't say it's all in bad faith, right? But it's strategic, as you would expect from any large tech company. Now it's up to us as a society to use this moment to, again, make sure we put in the protections that forefront the public interest over the business interest. Well, that's what's interesting is that in London, the Met Police, they announced, I think it was earlier this year, that they're going to start using facial recognition throughout the capital, which, again, I don't know who the vendor is, but I presume these are problems that are throughout the industry. And you just, as you say, there's already evidence that this is going wrong in some pretty serious ways. It does feel like trying to catch the horse after it's already bolted the barn. Well, I think one thing that we should be cautious of is not to paint it as a foregone conclusion. So even if the Met is trialing it in the Capitol, even just today, Boston City Council voted for a ban on government use of face recognition and for surveillance in the city of Boston, right? It's the second Mm -hmm. largest city to do so. You had San Francisco um, start this off last year as well. And you've had Berkeley and Oakland and Cambridge and Brookline. And you have the state of California putting a moratorium on the use of facial recognition on police body cams. I say all of this to make sure we don't fall into this trap of thinking there's nothing we can do. It's already out there. We must accept the surrender of our faces, the tracking of our traces. This just isn't true. We can change the paradigm. Even Google, we did a poem called AI Anti-Woman. We showed Google labeling Sojourner Truth a clean-shaven old man in this poem, AI Anti-Woman. And they've Mm. taken off gendered labels for their publicly available APIs. This was a design choice. So we shouldn't feel that, oh, there's nothing we can do. There's no way to hold tech companies accountable. We're already seeing that there are ways to put in checks and to roll back what we don't agree with as a society. We have a voice. We have a choice. If you have a face, you have a place in this conversation. And we can choose societies that are not subject to suppressive surveillance. This is our choice. Are you a comic book fan? (laughs) Well, in so much as um, we've run into, uh, well, Wired, did did you read the Wired article? It's Justice League versus Algorithmic Justice League. (laughs) So I try to register the trademark Algorithmic Justice League because this concept of Justice League well predated the comics. Um, right. And so I was actually inspired by real justice leagues. But anyhow, there was some point where I was fighting fictional characters and the Amazonians. So I try not to talk about comics too much after that experience. I understand. I understand. I don't, I didn't want to lead you into a, some, uh, some difficult territory there. I just, uh, it's the, the, I was a comic fan, comic book fan growing up. And so justice league kind of obviously rang some bells. Who funds the Justice League? How do you operate? How do you stay running? 
we appreciate donations. So I would encourage people to head to the Algorithmic Justice League website, ajlunited.org. But we've also been really fortunate to receive uh, funding from foundations. So looking at foundations like Ford Foundation and MacArthur Foundation. And I really want to commend Ford Foundation for not just supporting the research, but also supporting the art. And a major component of what we do uh, with the Algorithmic Justice League is around storytelling. And Mm. that might not be the obvious approach when you're talking about how do you combat issues of uh, um, bias or discrimination in AI. But at the end of the day, it's the stories that resonate with us. And so for taking a chance on the storytelling approach, I think definitely gave us a solid foundation. And we also had Sloan Foundation come in to support the film Coded Bias. So Coded Bias is the first documentary I'm aware of that really humanizes AI harms. You see what what it looks like when uh, you were talking about in the UK, they're deploying face recognition. Here you actually see a 14-year-old boy being arrested. That's in the documentary. You see what it looks like when a teacher is at risk of losing his job because a system has said he's not a great teacher. Meanwhile, he's like showing his teacher of the year awards, you know? And so what I appreciate with that kind of funding is it allows people to become more aware of how these systems are being used because you can't fight the power you don't see. So we're making it visible so we know what we're mobilizing against. And lastly, just in terms of you've been at this for a while, how has the temperature changed or, you know, the way the direction of the wind? Because I imagine four years ago, you were probably kind of more of a lone voice, you know, shouting into the wilderness. Obviously, much has changed since then. Oh, yeah, no, um, it's, it's sometimes it makes me laugh when I see who is on board now. And I'm happy that more people are looking at issues of um, AI harms and bias. But it is a situation where women, women of color, people of color have been sounding the alarm for years And now we're seeing it become a a bit more mainstream where some of that history uh, gets erased. And so it has been interesting to see over the last even few months, right, this understanding of some of the dangers of facial recognition technologies because people are outside protesting and it becomes more real. Oh, I'm outside protesting. I'm trying to exercise my fundamental rights. What does it look like if the government can snatch my face? And so that making it more concrete has opened up space for more of a conversation. But I will say even to get the research published was a challenge. And when I first shared what I was doing, I mean, nobody stopped me, but it wasn't as if there was massive encouragement. I was actually quite fortunate to uh, be connected with then student, but now Dr. Timnit Gebru while she was at Stanford and I was working on this because some of the ideas I was exploring as another, she's an electrical engineer background and then got her PhD from Stanford, but as another technical woman in the space, seeing some of the kinds of issues I was exploring, I 
felt validated in what I was looking at and a kind of validation I wasn't necessarily getting from my immediate surroundings, not because people were had a bad intention, but they just really didn't get it. <laughs> it's like, yeah. why are you looking at gender classification? Why does this matter? And now I think it's become uh, more apparent because people are also seeing these kinds of technologies in their lives even more. Well, look, I wish you luck. It's fascinating and I think very important work. Anybody listening, go to... Uh, AJLunited.org. AJLunited.org. Great. Well, thank you again for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. Appreciate you as well. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Joy for taking the time to talk. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm actually on vacation this week. And I'm sitting here in my garage uh, recording this for you because, you know, it's all love. It's all love. In these torrid times, we all do what we can. Anyway, I hope uh, you guys enjoyed it. We'll be back with another pod next week, as usual. We might have a big guest. We've got some stuff in the works, so we shall see. Thank you again for listening. Stay safe. Stay sane. Buy a paper. Subscribe to The Times. Rate this podcast. Do it all. Do it for me. And have a wonderful weekend. Thanks. Bye-bye. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.